You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. As I said, my name is James. My wife is Amy. Um, We moved here, and I I came on staff here just a couple of months ago to be a church planning resident. Now, that's that's kind of a fancy title that means that what I am doing is I am learning, training, and equipping to be sent by Connection Church eventually to the city of Brookings to plant a church with a focus on South Dakota State University students. Uh, God has been wonderful and gracious and good so that part of that training and part of what God is doing here is we've pretty much done the same thing on Augustana University. It's called the Light Company, if you haven't heard of it, and God is doing wonderful things through students uh, on Augustana's campus. I would love to talk to you more about that in the future. would also love to talk to you more about what God has put on our hearts to do in Brookings as well. This morning, we get to continue our journey through the book of Matthew. So we're in Matthew chapter 9, um, and that's where we'll be. Matthew is, is the first book in the section of the Bible that we call the New Testament. Uh, if, if you aren't familiar with the Bible or don't have one with you, there's a Bible in the, in the rack under the chair in front of you as well. It's blue. Um, don't be afraid of the table of contents. Also, you know, Bible apps and, and Google will get you to the book of Matthew chapter 9. One of the themes that we've been following through Matthew is this theme of authority. At the end of chapter 7, we, we saw where the, the people declared that the teaching of Jesus, that he taught with authority that they were unfamiliar with, unlike the scribes and Pharisees, but a different kind of authority that, they, that was different than anything they had ever heard. And at the very end of the book of Matthew, in, in chapter 28, we see where Jesus claims all authority for himself, and he sends out his disciples to make disciples. And so the particular passage that we are in today is set in this rhythm of miracles, and it is pointing toward and reinforcing Matthew's case about Jesus' authority. You see, what we've been going through, if you've been here, I'll, or if haven't, I'll, I'll just kind of reorient you there, is we had this um, story of miracles, then there was a discipleship moment, and then there was a story of miracles, then there was another teaching and discipleship moment, and now we are, we are in the final kind of triplet of miracles that Jesus is doing. And Matthew is using these miracles to demonstrate Jesus' authority. We'll be introduced to four different people or groups of people. One of the four people we will be introduced to is two blind men who Jesus heals to show that he is the promised Messiah come to restore all things. Specifically, as the Messiah, he has come to bring people from death to life, from unclean to clean and pure, from blind to seeing and from possessed and enslaved by evil to set free and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we'll see that Jesus does this not out of obligation, but because He wants to, out of His love and out of His grace. Not because we have earned anything or not because we have deserved it. In fact, we'll see that those who believe that they have earned God's favor are the ones that will reject Jesus and call him a servant of the devil. See, it is Jesus 
who has the authority and power to restore us from life and give us a new heart. But self-reliance will doom us to die with a heart of stone, rejecting Jesus. And so in Matthew chapter 9, we'll start in verses 18 and we read through verse 34. Um, again, if you're not familiar with uh, the Bible, the chapters are the large numbers, the verses are the small numbers. It starts like this. When he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come, lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am the one able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Through these miracles, we are once again presented with Jesus' authority. We are shown more areas that Jesus has authority over. And, and these specific miracles are not chosen by Matthew at random. In fact, if you look at some of the other accounts of these miracles and the other four books telling of Jesus's, or the other three books telling of Jesus's time on earth, uh, they may be in different places chronologically, these, these three stories. And this may be confusing to us, but there's a helpful thing to remember here is that the ancient historical culture that this was written in, biography was written differently than we understand it now. See, if I was to pick up and write a biography of someone today, I would write it chronologically from the beginning to the end, right? So if I picked up uh, Manchester's 
three-volume biography of Winston Churchill, they're all about like that thick, right? And it starts with the beginning of his life and walks all the way through to the end of his life, telling the story of Winston Churchill. So I'm not asking the question of that book, why is he telling this particular story and why? And why is it in this location in the storytelling? Those answers are apparent to us. It's because it happened and it wasn't mundane, though in three volumes that are this thick, there are probably mundane stories in there. Um, And the reason they're in that location is because that's just how it happened in the course of his life. We rarely read non-chronological biographies. And if we do, that's because the author is trying to be clever, right? But in Matthew's day, the opposite is true. Biographies, for the extent that you would call them that, and that's, that's kind of what we're reading here, is, is in that genre, we're about presenting who a person is and surrounding that claim with events in their life that support that claim. So what is Matthew claiming? Matthew is giving Jesus' credentials as Messiah. These miracles link back to prophecies in the Old Testament that were made about the coming Messiah. So Matthew is saying, here's Messiah, and here are all the stories that point you back to prophecies that say, this is Messiah. See, Jesus is the king who restores He is the one that was promised. And this is how Matthew is presenting these miracles. See, if we look at these miracles and we just see Jesus fixing these individual people's problems, we have missed the point. Jesus is healing them, but he is doing more. He is restoring them. He is demonstrating how he brings people from death to life. From unclean to clean, from blind to seeing, and from evil living inside to able to speak the things of God. Each of these healings shows us something specific about Jesus and what he has come to do. So when we look at the first one, the account of the girl that Jesus raised from the dead, we see that Jesus has come to bring people from death into life, to make dead people alive. This is good news, right? That's what we celebrate over here when we have baptisms on a Sunday morning. We celebrate being buried with Christ into death and raised to newness of life with Him. We are told that we are dead in our wickedness and rebellion against God. We are without life and without the ability to access life. We are without hope. We are dead and have no hope of being made alive. But Jesus has come to change all of that. Jesus takes the death that we deserve onto himself. He dies in our place. He gives his life for us. He pays the price of our wickedness and our rebellion. And he gives us his reward. Well, how can he do that? Because he has defeated death. See, when Jesus died for us, he didn't stay dead. He defeated death by rising rising to life. And it didn't stick to him. Death has no hold over him. 
It does not own him. Jesus takes our old dead heart and he gives us one that is alive. See, death is the great enemy. There is no comfort in death. There is no relief in death. Death is not our friend. Sometimes, sometimes we can speak as if it is our friend, as if it does bring relief, as if it does bring an end to suffering. But what the Bible teaches is that physical death is only the beginning of greater suffering, that the final death waits for us in eternal and unspeakable suffering. This is what Jesus has defeated. For the one who placed their hope in Jesus, death is still the enemy, but an enemy without bite. Paul says, Oh, death, where is your sting? He can sing that because Jesus has overcome death. Not because death is sweet, it is the victory over death that we can find comfort in. That promises us rest on the other side of death. That promises eternity with Jesus and the ending of our suffering and joy beyond all our comprehension. That's what waits for us. Not in death, on the other side of death. And this may not seem like a big deal at the moment. Life may feel full and it may feel endless, but there will come a day when it doesn't. Pain, suffering, and the frailty of the human condition will stare us all in the face someday. And on that day, we are able to hold onto certain hope that Jesus has defeated death. And that these things, no matter how great they may seem, Paul speaks of them as light and momentary afflictions when viewed alongside the eternal weight of glory. This isn't something that is theoretical. This isn't some feel-good thing that you can hear from a stage. This is something that has played itself out in the history of people who have followed Jesus for generation after generation after generation, as people who follow Jesus have been placed in the fire, have been fed to lions, have sung praises to Jesus as they have been executed. This isn't something that we just kind of say and put on a motivational poster. This changes how we live in this world. Maybe you're staring death in the face. Maybe your life is one moment of pain blending into the next moment of pain. This hope is for you. Whatever it is that is afflicting you, it will not have the last say. Jesus will overcome it. It is finite. It has an end. And it will give way to the infinite. 
to the glory of the presence of Jesus. Now, I know this doesn't ease your pain today. This doesn't make facing death easy. But it does bring hope and resolve to wait on that moment when we enter the presence of glory with Jesus. We see a similar thing being taught us through the woman who suffers from bleeding. She's been bleeding for 12 years. And because of her condition, she would have been considered unclean, unable to go to the temple, unable to go to the local Jewish places of worship called synagogues. More than likely, she has never been married or potentially was divorced because she can not have children. And in that culture and society, that's, that's where a woman found her worth. In addition, according to the Jewish law, whatever she sat on, whatever she was around, whatever she touched would be considered unclean. She has been separated from the presence of God and God's people for 12 years. And she has tried everything to get it back. In other accounts of this story, it says she has spent her, every bit of her money on doctors that only made it worse. She has tried everything to become clean, but nothing has worked. See, she is broken and ostracized. Imagine her loneliness, pain, and hopelessness. Yet Jesus restores this woman. He calls her daughter, daughter of the king. He restores this woman from separation from the presence of God into the presence of God as a child of God. Jesus takes her uncleanness and gives her his purity and holiness. When Jesus brings us to himself in our wickedness and our rebellion, that is the end of it. See, he has paid for it. It is done. It doesn't stick to Jesus. In place of our wickedness, he gives us his righteousness. See, Jesus takes our old, unclean, wicked heart, and he gives us a pure heart. And with our new, pure heart, we have a restored relationship with God. We are able to enter into his presence. We are able to fellowship with him. And see, this is true of every one of us. We are all unclean. We are all wicked. We are all evil. Just like this woman, our relationship with God isn't the only thing that is affected. Our wickedness also results in broken relationships with those around us. See, the evil in my heart and in your heart doesn't stay there. We are walking containers of leaking, toxic waste. And everywhere we go, we leak our waste, our toxicity, 
our contamination on everyone around us. And it damages, it burns, it eats away at everything that was once good. It spills out in the way that I treat the people around me. It spills out in the form of my own pride. It spills out in the way that I am critical of others. It spills out in the way that I pursue my own comfort at the expense of others. And you know what I'm talking about, right? You see this in yourself and those around you. You and I have been deeply hurt by the unclean hearts of the people closest to us. And you have deeply hurt them because of the uncleanness in your heart. But in Jesus, there is restoration. See, Jesus is able to give us a new heart. He is able to switch out the toxic waste that we are carrying around for love, for the Spirit of God, for the fruits of the Spirit, goodness, graciousness, compassion, holiness. Jesus is able to give a heart that forgives. Jesus is able to give a heart that asks forgiveness. The journey may be long. See, even with a new, pure heart, the old wickedness kind of hangs out, still wants to be there. It fights back until we are finally with Jesus forever. But Jesus is able to restore and reconcile us to each other because we are stored and reconciled with Him, to Him. Don't hear me wrong, though. I'm not saying that this is easy, but I am saying that it is possible. I'm not saying that it is instantaneous, but I am saying that it's possible. And Jesus is demonstrating that that is possible. The next account we see is Jesus bringing two blind men from blindness to sight. See, throughout the Old Testament, blindness is uh, used as this kind of metaphor for the, the old heart that can't see what God is doing. The prophets say, man, repent of your blindness because you can't see how God is working around you. And Matthew will employ this same metaphor. But in this case, Jesus is healing physical blindness and restoring sight. And he is also teaching us that Jesus who restores us to a proper understanding of God and what he is doing. Only through the work of Jesus do we have access to to the Spirit, who overcomes our spiritual blindness and allows us to glimpse what God is doing in the world. It is only through the work of the Spirit in us that we can even read this Bible and understand any fragment of anything the way God intends it to be understood. See, Jesus has taken our blind heart and He has restored it to a heart that can see by the work of His Spirit. 
Blindness, spiritual blindness, is most often attributed to those who you would think should not be blind, to the religious leaders, to the people who spend their lives studying the Word. Yet this is exactly who Jesus and so many of the Old Testament prophets point to as the ones who are blind, who don't truly see what God is doing. They're so consumed by what they think they know to be right that they don't have time for what God has to say. They're so consumed by their religious actions that they don't see what God is actually teaching them. And this can be true of us. I know for a fact that it has been true of me. We can be so consumed by religious programs that we miss Jesus. We can be so consumed by religious knowledge that we miss Jesus. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Knowing more about God is not wrong. Spend time studying the Word. Spend time digging into all the things that God has said in the most in-depth way that you can. But if we study the Bible to sound smart or to have a theological mic drop on somebody, we are blind. We are the blind ones, and we have missed the whole point of what we're being told through the Word of God. It is only through Jesus opening our spiritual eyes that we can see Him clearly in Scripture. Study the Bible to find Jesus, not to feed an arrogance of knowledge. We cannot worship what we do not know, but we also can't know without the Spirit opening our eyes and showing us who Jesus is. The final person that we are introduced here is the demon-oppressed man. See, Jesus brings this man from enslavement and muteness to freedom and having a voice. This guy literally has evil living within him. Yet Jesus frees him from that evil that has control over him and gives him a voice to declare what Jesus has done. Now, you and I, we may not, we probably don't, have a literal demon living in us. Um, But we do have evil hearts of stone that are enslaved to sin and, you could say, possessed by our rebellious nature. See, but Jesus restores us. He gives us a heart that is righteous a heart that is free from the bondage of sin, and a heart that is saturated with the Spirit of God. Wickedness and rebellion or sin so easily enslave us, yet Jesus frees us from that. The addiction, the habit that you can't seem to get rid of, the thing that you just keep doing over and over again that you hate yourself because of, that is what Jesus frees us from. Jesus unchains us from bondage. Jesus gives us the ability to desire new 
things in place of those old things. Now, this doesn't mean that those old desires are instantly gone, that they won't hang on, that they won't continue to entice us and sometimes drag us under. Actually, they they probably will be there. It may continue to be a daily fight that you fight every moment of every day. But they no longer own us. Because of our new heart, we can start gaining ground with the hope that we will forever be free. See, all of these miracles point to the authority of Jesus as the great restorer who takes our dead heart and gives us one that is alive, who takes our old, unclean, wicked heart and gives us a pure heart, who takes our blind, unseeing heart and gives us a heart that can see who God is and what He is doing, who takes our evil, enslaved, and possessed heart and gives us a new, righteous, free, and spirit-filled heart. You see the theme here. Our heart is the problem. Our heart is the thing that keeps us from Jesus until we get a new one. In your high school English class, you may have been introduced to a short story by a very bizarre person named Edgar Allan Poe about a telltale heart where he kills a man and he hears the beating over and over again until he just goes insane. It is not someone else's heart that condemns us. It is our heart. We are not evil. We do not do things that we hate because of the world around us. We do them because of our heart. It is our heart that Jesus wants to change. It is our heart that needs replaced and restored by the one who has come to restore and change our heart. And all this, just like in these stories, all this is from Jesus. It is not something that we can do for ourselves. Both the dead girl and the demon-possessed man are presented to us with no agency at all, actually. Like, she's dead, and he's just brought to Jesus. The blind men and the bleeding woman come to Jesus, but neither of them are actually able to offer Jesus anything. The initiative and completion of what occurred in the lives of these people is all from Jesus. They didn't do anything to deserve what Jesus did. And they didn't do anything to pay Jesus back. The blind men actually just turned around and immediately disobeyed what Jesus told them to do. But they didn't become blind again. Jesus is the one who calls us to himself to give us a new heart. He takes the initiative. He is the one who completes the work of bringing us from death to life. And who is that? Who is it that Jesus draws to himself? Is it the religious elite? Is it the upright and the pious? Is it the upstanding and important? Not at all. There's a ruler here, but he's acting on behalf of his daughter. 
And the ruler didn't come in importance. He came in desperation. And the others had no cultural value whatsoever either. Jesus is healing culturally inferior people. Jesus is showing that there is no one beneath his consideration. And this, friends, is wonderful news because none of us are worthy of Jesus' consideration. We are all worthless, we are all dead, we are all unclean, and we are all blind, and we are all unable to call out to Him. Once we begin to think that we are worthy of Jesus' consideration, that's when we reject who Jesus is and what He has done. That's how this passage ends, actually. We have previously seen, building up in the story of Matthew, how there's this growing conflict and resentment to the ministry of Jesus. Only a couple of weeks ago, we saw how Jesus forgave the sins of a man, but the religious elite muttered to themselves hostile things about Jesus, that he was claiming to be God, which they saw as a massive crime. Now we see open rejection of Jesus and hostility toward him by the religious leaders. They say, yeah, he does this, but it's only because he's an ally of Satan. And this is where self-righteousness always leads. This is where relying on our own religious and moral actions always ends in rejecting Jesus. See, sometimes we can believe that we can craft a person in ourselves that is pretty good. Sometimes we can believe that we are almost, almost so close to being worthy of God's forgiveness, that we are almost so close to deserving eternity with God, and that the work of Jesus then is to kind of just complete that little bit that we can't quite do. That is absolutely incompatible with anything Jesus has ever taught or said. This self-righteous legalism ultimately rejects Jesus and what he has done. The more that we try to hold on to our own effort, the more we will actually hate the good news that Jesus brings, and the more we will view Jesus as the enemy the more we hold on to, yeah, 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 but I did that thing. Yeah, yeah, but I go to church. Jesus says, drop your yeah buts. Just come to me. Those are worthless. Instead, we let go of our own effort. We realize that it is Jesus alone who has the authority and power to restore us to life and give us a new heart. Understand that self-reliance may look and seem good, but it will doom us to die with a heart of stone, rejecting Jesus. Take all of your brokenness, all of your failures, your pain and your disappointment to Jesus. But more importantly, take your dead heart to Jesus. He will give you a new one. Let him give you hope in face of death. 
Let Him reconcile and restore your relationships. Let Him show you who He is and what He is doing. And let Him set you free from the sin that so easily enslaves us. Go to Jesus. Get a new heart. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, just for this wonderful morning you have given us to worship you, to study your word, to hear what you have to tell us, Lord. Uh, Lord, soften our hearts, give us new hearts, change who we are, free us from the sin that so easily entangles us. Just, Lord, bring us to you. Bring us into your presence. You know my prayer. Amen.